Hello, everyone. Welcome to the LDA podcast, formerly known as Truth in Learning. And I am here with my two friends in arms, my two colleagues in arms, my two gurus in arms, Dr. Clark. I almost wanted to call you Clark Clifford, the, you know, the politician from the 1950s. I don't know why that just popped in my head. Anyway, Dr. Clark Quinn and Dr. Will Tallheimer. <laughs> I, I don't know if you can hear it, folks who are listening. I think one person is listening right now, my father. Uh, but uh, uh, we had loud applause when I mentioned the two of them. But anyway, we're happy, thrilled to re-inaugurate uh, the podcast. And uh, uh, Will, it's been three years, I think, since our last Truth and Learning episode. Three years? It just seems like last week. I, I can't it, imagine. I know, just, you know, a pandemic, a major financial crisis, the whole uh, creation and formulation of LDA. Um, but actually, the podcast turned into LDA. That's true. Right? We went from podcast to the Learning Development Conference. And then we're like, we can't do it all. And then we melded, merged, evolved into the Learning Development Accelerator. Yeah. Oh, those were wild times. That was uh, COVID came. Yeah. And we thought, oh, let's have an online conference because all the conferences will be destroyed. And uh, did that. And then people said, hey, you guys need to continue this great community. Yep. That was my father again uh, <laughs> who said that. But um, <laughs> but actually, that's how I met Clark Quinn. Really? You introduced me to Clark Quinn. I had never met Clark before. That's impossible. Uh, how could you? I, I don't know how it happened, but you got to remember at all the conferences, I was always the one holding Tiagi's suitcases. So <laughs> he would talk to people. I didn't get to talk to people. Um, so that's one of the things I found is that there's so many pockets of people who know each other and don't know this other pockets. And we're trying to break that down a bit, but it's yeah um, hard well work. i mean i've always known patty shank like patty i've known patty for decades because patty went to iu so she had always had a connection with tiagi i think i think and i if i'm wrong it's my fault i think uh he was on her doctoral committee uh oh. so there's there's that long connection and stuff so but anyway the lda podcast is back because uh, we realized that everyone and their grandmothers putting out a learning and development podcast, and how could we not have ours back? Uh, so we wanted to bring it back. Um, and we wanted to not do a vlog because, frankly, I have a face for radio. So we decided to stick with that. So anyway, Will, you've gone through a bunch of transitions, though, uh, over the last few years as well. So uh, where are you at now? Actually, right now, you're the chair of our advisory board, but you're so much more. So <laughs> what are you doing now? Are you referring to my transition, like when I turned 65 and became officially an old man? Is that what you're referring to? No, no. Well, that I, was a long time. That was before I met you, right? I mean, oh. you, you've been 60. <laughs> no, that was just this year. As well, as far as my memory, you know, uh, well, me. What's your uh, name? I I am restarting work learning research. Uh, I was fully employed for a while, and now I am back at it, and uh, trying to have some fun with that. 
So just really getting started now, but uh, looking forward to good times ahead. And for those of you who don't know, uh, Will and I brought Clark in into the partnership of LDA. And Clark and I run LDA day to day now. And um, and it's been a, a, an incredible pleasure getting to know Clark and, and work with him. Uh, well, actually, well, every day now. And uh, so, Clark, it's been a while, but officially <laughs> on the podcast, let me welcome you. Thanks very much. And, you know, and I had known Will for years and I'd, um, we we're buddies and but I didn't know Matt. And so this bringing together was a real eye opener in a sense, because I've actually learned so much from working with you, Matt, um, about how to run a society. Do, what not to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm learning to make new mistakes. Isn't that fun? <laughs> Oh. Ouch. Ouch. That, that actually hurts. <laughs> all on my own. No, I'm not following you on that at all. Oh, good. You can see good. tears. You know, I know this is not a visual medium, but just to give you a little context here, you can see tears running down the side of Matt's face. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, well, today's episode, our, our rebooted episode, it's either episode one or episode 30 something. It is going to have two main segments. Normally, we will have three segments, but it's going to have two segments because we're spending so much time just catching you all up with where we're at. Uh, but segment one, we're going to keep Will here, and we're going to talk about uh, what every CEO should know about learning and development. And the reason we're going to talk about that is because, uh, Will, you have an upcoming book about that, right? I do. Uh, the CEO's Guide to Training, E-Learning, and Work, Reshaping Learning into a Competitive Advantage. <laughs> and our second segment, we have the wonderful Kat Coppett joining us, and we're going to talk about storytelling, because everyone on the planet now seems to be embracing the activity or the mechanism of using storytelling. But what do we actually mean by that in the context of learning? How might we use storytelling from an evidence-informed uh, place? And how should we think about storytelling more concretely and, and not just as a once-upon-a-time uh, once type of activity? So Kat's going to join us. We're going to have uh, uh, a dynamic uh, tale of, of story. And then we are bringing back our our tradition of the good, the bad, and the ugly, or the worst and the best uh, in what's happened in learning and development. So we will make sure that Will rejoins us for that segment at the end as well. So Will, let's let's do our transition now. And uh, and what should every CEO know? How would you summarize uh, a CEO's knowledge or potential knowledge about learning well so let, let me answer that question and then do a little shift so uh first of all ceos have a lot to think about right not just l d but um l d is one aspect of an organization and they should know something about it so they can manage it well uh it's my contention that the relationship that we L&D folks have with our senior uh, staff uh, is not as productive as it might be. Uh, 
And, uh, you know, I've been working in the L&D field for like three and a half decades. <laughs> That's a long time. And uh, worked with, you know, thousands of learning professionals, uh, hundreds, maybe thousands of organizations. And there's sort of one theme that's come up over and over and over as I've worked with folks. And that is we in L&D feel frustrated by what we're able to do. Uh, we wanna build good learning, but we feel like uh, sometimes stymied by the organization. And one reason is that uh, our senior leaders don't understand what learning can do. And, I'll, and when I say learning, I'm really talking about learning and performance improvement. Um, and uh, because of that, uh, it creates a lot of issues with those of us who uh, work in the field. We get frustrated, uh, we get annoyed. Um, I was speaking with a woman recently. Um, you know, one, one of the things I did when I started restarted work learning research was I offered free consulting and about 30 people took me up on this. And I was talking to this one woman one day and she's a leader of L&D in her organization, and she's been advocating for research-based best practices, and she's built a team around this, and she's had some successes, but she and her team find it a struggle over and over. They're pushing for improvements, and they're getting pushed back. And, uh, you know, she's actually deciding whether to stay with the organization or to go. Uh, and I, I'm that's depressing enough. And, but then she said something to me. She goes, I really just want to bring some joy back into my L&D work. And so I think there's a, there's a big uh, need for us in L&D to empower ourselves. And I think part of that is having a better relationship uh, with our senior leaders. But you know, I, I don't want this just to be about my book. I wanna hear what you guys think as well. You have both been in the field a long time. Well, I wanna, Maybe the people in the trenches really do get frustrated what they do, but somewhere between the layer at the CEO and the trench worker is something broken because I also see a lot of people who aren't taking the steps they could take to get better. They aren't measuring stuff. And this is, you know, I picked this up from you as much as anybody will, but um, I see them just losing smile sheets and thinking they're doing this and reporting back people love our learning so it's all good and everybody's happy and that's not happening at the CEO level they're not asking for smile sheet evaluation they're saying give me your data and we're choosing to do that yeah and that's a problem so I, I your characterization of oh L&D is is hampered by the people above isn't f a full picture in my mind well certainly um, there's many, uh, there's many of us in L and D and I guess the people that I resonate with are the people that are trying to do good stuff. Uh, they're trying to use best practices. They're trying to do good evaluations and they, they've gotten frustrated. Certainly there's many who haven't thought about what's good practice and they're just going along to go along and we use smile sheets. Yeah, it's a terrible, they want one of the chapters. I don't know if the title is crap data, but certainly the message of the chapter is, hey, you CEO, just want you to know, we in L&D are giving you crap data um, and we're not creating cycles of improvement. Um, so yeah, uh, I don't want to paint a panacea that we're all in, uh, that we're all charging forward. 
Um, but there are a lot of us that do want to do good work. And, and, and I see this in, in LDA, right? Um, I've been working with LDA. I used to do, what was the name of the thing that I did? The, the weekly, I forget. Learning, weekly learning insights, learning weekly insights. By yeah. the way, if you join, learning insights, you watched all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Come a so, member to see them. That was, those were great discussions with um, really motivated L and D folks, um, but you you know it's it's kind of you know we've been going. I I like I said I've been in the field a long time. You guys have too, and you know are we improving? Absolutely. Uh, I think more... you got, I think we're conflating two different things though. Yeah. We got to be careful, and that's the motives of L and D professionals, and there we have a whole spectrum of people where we, we can take them the folks who all have good intentions and we have a spectrum of people delivering highly evidence informed and uh, work and those who have very good intentions who are not and anywhere in between and then we also have the ceo herself who uh, has a totally possibly different set of expectations for what she may want from lnd a lot of CEOs want L&D to just deliver upskilling, and they don't necessarily know what that means. They don't know what that encompasses. They just know that right now, today, their body of labor is not able to do X, and they expect L&D to close that gap. And L&D for them becomes quite uh, prescriptive. It's, it's less strategic. Yeah, it's a transaction. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I tell CEOs, I have a chapter, hey, uh, there, there is research on training and uh, training has been shown to be effective. So that's one side of it. And then another chapter right after that is, okay, uh, it's been shown to be effective, but at the same time, most of us are not making it as effective as we might make it. And more than that, uh, it's not just training. You know, good training needs organizational support. Uh, there's also performance support. Uh, there's, you know, activating the, the things in the environment to activate performance triggers and thoughts and, and, uh, and actions. Um, so there's a lot going on there that people should think about. So in the book, what I'm trying to do is get uh, senior folks to be thinking about things they might not have thought about. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't expect our CEOs to be necessarily educated in what L&D can do. Um, but I think we bear a responsibility as well uh, in L&D because some of, the, some of the messages that we send to them um, are not as uh, useful as they might be. Like you said, we send smile sheets up, up the chain. And so, you know. And attendance reports. Attendance reports, yeah, completion rates. <laughs> Um, and the number of people that we've trained this year, I mean, all that is pretty meaningless. Um, a, a sort of, well, I, I add this chapter and it may be not the most important chapter, but, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, awards that happen in our field. And most, you know, the, the award, award uh, giving people awards for their performance is hard, right? Uh, you have to ask them to fill out an application and then you have to evaluate the application. But, you know, you're really it's all self-report data. 
Um, we often ask the wrong things on those. Um, so there's sort of a tendency for us in L&D to want to win an award so that our CEO knows that we're doing a good job. But that cycle of feedback is really, really weak. And so I say, hey, be suspicious of these things. We had um, we had a guest at one of the conferences, a guy named Harold Sugunas. And Harold is uh, retired now, but he, he's been a CFO at several organizations. And he said from a CFO perspective, so not the CEO perspective, so from the purely financial view, he said the big problem with L&D is most people don't upskill overnight. They upskill over time. And I care about quarterly improvements and annual improvements. And so if you can't show me a, an actual return on productivity or some kind of financial return, within the quarter or the year end, I it, it's not a, it doesn't matter to me because I move into the next year. So when I start moving into the next budgetary cycle, I'm thinking about returns then. And so if it, I paid for it last year, it doesn't get accrued into this year. And so the problem is that I think quarterly and annually, and L&D is thinking more longitudinally. And uh, I thought that was an intriguing difference in perspective, um, especially when you're talking about leadership's development or you're talking about managerial skills that yeah. may take a while to to actually ferment. I, I, I you know, in some sense, uh, you know, it depends on what you're upskilling, right? If you're trying to learn a, a you know, Microsoft Word or an IT package, that's like... You should be able to do that in a month and get up to speed and do that. But if you're trying to, you know, improve your performance as a leader, I know one of your favorite topics, Matt. Um, well, you used to be a leadership trainer, right? Oh no, you're going to have to go back and listen to all the episodes before to get that little inside joke there. But yes, um, uh, you know, then, then that is more of a longer term thing. I, I most I don't. I don't we, you know, we should think oftentimes in longitudinal, longer term, but I don't think we do. You know, we really look at the course ratings, you know, so. Exactly. And that, and if you're talking about Microsoft training, right, or, or some kind of tech skills, I know a lot of people are now training on migrating to different financial databases and things like that. Well, that's just reinforcing the notion that L&D is a transactional entity versus a part of a strategic endeavor. And uh, so I think I think the value of what your book is going to offer, hopefully, is that uh, it's getting CFOs and other C staff to view L&D as inherently strategic and how to ask better questions and to pull that out from people who are probably mid-level tacticians and uh, need to probably be better facilitated by the executive team on how to think more strategically. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, one of the one of the things I'm doing in the book, uh, that one of the final chapters is what should you as CEO spend more on in L&D and what should you spend less on? AI. <laughs> AI. <laughs> Well, so let's do a little, let's do a little, you know, get your impressions. I know, I know, you know, I haven't given you any time on this. Uh, 
just you know to represent i didn't give you these this this cube beforehand but what what would you have people um in l and d spend less money and time on um let's start with there any thoughts come to mind oh i would stop getting you know course libraries um i would uh i would do less courses and make sure the ones I'm doing are doing well, are done well, but I'm only doing courses when a course is the right answer. So I'd spend more on performance consulting and I'd spend less on just cranking out courses on demand. Um, just off the top of my head, Matt. I would stop investing in massive amounts of technology. I would go back to basics and focus on having good design structures. I love what you said about performance support. I would get rid of having instructional designers and trainers as, uh, and think about having learning consultants who are able to facilitate soup to nuts. Um, I would invest more in, in evaluation, but not smiley sheets, not um, uh, attendance records and so forth, completion. Um, I would use LTEM, the learning transfer evaluation model. <laughs> um, so these were some of the things. I might do less leadership development too yeah. and, and more everybody development. Yes. Yeah. Um, I would stop having learning objects that get plugged and played. Oh, now, come on, Matt. Everybody thinks those are good things. They're they're economical. You can reuse them. <laughs> well, what, what's wrong with them? They're economical. They're reusable, but they're non-contextual. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, why is that a problem? Uh, are you doing rhetorical questioning? <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> so you know, context I flip, I is everything. This, this is flipped learning. I flipped the interview around. <laughs> you on... flipped the classroom. Yeah. So context is everything. Clark, why do we care about context? This is a big part of make it meaningful. Because we're not these formal logical reasoning beings. We're very context sensitive. And as such, if we don't take context explicitly into consideration and we don't design to support uh, context appropriately contextualized responses, we're going to get random garbage out. Yeah, great. That's a short so, answer. By the way, I loved your answers uh, to uh, the question of what to budget less for and what to budget more for. Um, in, in, in the book, I have like 10 or 15 for what to budget less for, 10 or 15 for what to budget more for. And uh, you guys are uh, aligned with um, what I'm uh, talking about there. Um, I'll I'll add a couple things. Uh, you know, budget uh, budget less for training that doesn't provide any realistic practice, right? If you're just throwing content at people, that's a bad investment. Um, don't do leadership training based on popular books. Ah! Amen, amen. <laughs> and don't hire legacy employees into training just because they. We need a place to find Joe, you know, a, a, a place for Joe now that he's sort of getting older. That's a terrible investment. And uh, crankier. <laughs> so uh, invest more in professional development for learning professionals. We in L&D do not have much budget that we are able to spend for our own professional development. And it's like the cobbler's 
the shoemaker's uh, kids not wearing shoes. We're all about learning, but we don't really have enough money and time and resources to invest in ourselves. Um, also, we should have a really good uh, intake process. You know, somebody comes to us and wants a course. Um, we should be able to take them through a process to think about that more thoughtfully, to think about whether you need a course, what other kind of supports can we, can we offer? Can we do something different? Um, if we do do a course, uh, what can management provide, et cetera, et cetera? Um, How will we know that it's successful? Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, much better uh, evaluation. You guys already mentioned that. Um, but also more innovation and experimentation. We, we, you know, it's, it's insane that we're just like following recipes, cranking stuff out. We should be trying stuff. And you get these, our learning teams together and they all come bring a diverse background together. And then we argue over what's the best method instead of trying stuff out and seeing what works. Uh, now, obviously we can't do that willy nilly because that's going to have too much investment, but we should do some of it. Um, we should do smart experimentation, which leads me to a question, actually, Will, and this is, um, I haven't finished the book, so I don't know if you address this anywhere, but I've been arguing that L&D should also be involved in the informal innovation uh, activity because it is learning. You just don't have anybody who has the answer. So it requires a sort of facilitation we should be knowing about. Is that something you advocate to the CEOs? Absolutely. We, um, you know, there's there's the formal learning right in the classroom online etc but there's also groups learning together and uh, we have some wisdom about that and we can help uh, in that process creativity um, to me is one of essential characteristics of a good organization taking creativity and turning it into innovation we should be not only teaching courses on this but we should be integrating that wisdom into um, our learning opportunities but also perhaps facilitating why, why can't we, you know, say, hey, you know, you guys working on your, you know, you're doing your job. Um, can we help you innovate? And we can take people through a process to do that. But it's not just about innovation. One of, the, one of the big opportunities I see in the future is using not just the learning sciences, but the performance sciences. We know a lot now about habit sciences and performance triggering and nudging and uh, network science. Uh, Etc. And and these things we can begin to become stewards of a little bit. Um, uh, we tend to you know be labeled as training folks, um, but uh, we're in a position to support uh, organizations in doing better learning in the work. On that note, Will, let's wrap up this segment in uh, ninety nine seconds or less. How, what is one single piece of practical advice that you want to leave our audience with about how to convey the value L&D can offer to their C staff? Well, you know, to me, and when I was restarting work learning research, I sort of sat back and said, hey, what do I want to do now? You know, 65, I'm going off to my golden years. I uh, still have work to do. But what, what do I want my, you know, work learning research efforts, my consulting work to be about now? And the thing that struck me, um, and it's sort of related to the book, because I've been thinking about that a lot, 
is that we in L&D, uh, we need to be more empowered and we need to feel more empowered. And, um, you know, part of part of the book is to, to help that process, to get a better conversations going. Um, but uh, I think a lot of us feel stuck. And uh, so I think we need to come together and figure out how for us um, to try some new things out, to try some experimentation, to be innovative, to work together as groups, um, to evaluate better so we know that our efforts are, are more worthwhile. Um, but I think this notion of professionalization, you know, too long in the past, uh, we've talked about, you know, we are the servants of the organization, which is true, but it's not fully true, right? Um, you know, when people come to us, uh, we should say, hey, we have rigorous processes that we, we must use. Um, we have a, 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 a learning request process. We have a process to look at a bunch of different things strategically. Um, if we have our own um, body of wisdom and our own practices, um, then you know we are sort of stronger as a profession. Uh, I kind of feel looking back that sometimes we have felt too uh, stamped on, or you know that we're always kneeling down to you know the organization and to our senior leaders. Um, in some sense, we have to rise up. You know, if an architect uh, builds a building for an organization and the organizational leaders say, no, we want it to, to lean at a 45 degree angle or whatever, right? The architect says, no, we're not doing that because the building's going to fall down. I have a professional responsibility as an architect not to build that for you. And I think in L&D, we need to uh, sort of take on that mantle as well. We do know um, a lot of things we know what we're doing and we should sort of develop rigorous processes and uh, be confident in, you know, filling them out, doing them. Uh, I know that we're not there yet, but I think we should move in that direction. Wonderful. Will, where can people find you? Uh, well, worklearning.com. Uh, and if they're interested in the book, they can go to ceosguide.net. And uh, you can sign up there to be uh, to be notified when the book is coming out. Should be early 2024. Uh, I will be having a Kickstarter campaign uh, November or December this year. Uh, if you want to sign up early to get signed copies, etc. Um, I haven't Wonderful. figured out all the details there, but it should be fun. Excellent. Thank you, Will. And Will, you're going to come back and join us for uh, Best and Worst, right? That is awesome. My only regret is that I'll miss Kat because she's awesome. Well, <laughs> tune in and it'll feel like you were there. Okay, good. So, story continues. All right, let's move on to the Kat conversation about storytelling. Welcome back, everyone. 
and we are delighted now to be joined by the famed Kat Coppet from Coppet & Company. So Kat, welcome. Thank you for joining our reboot or inaugural episode. I, I'm not sure which it is. It's been three <laughs> years since we've done this. Nice. So, I'm thrilled to be here. I don't I don't think we got you on the previous uh series, did we? No, I was I'm a longtime listener, first time caller. Oh <laughs> good, good. <laughs> Good. And I thought we would, uh, first, I, I want to talk a little bit about who you are, but then I thought we'd spend time talking about storytelling because that's how we actually met. We met at a storytelling program you were running. I can tell that story. That would be great. Then can I tell my version? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, Kat, you are many, many things. You're a, you're a trainer, a facilitator, you're an professional improviser you're an actor i believe you were uh, a, a little pepper or dr pepper i was on a dr pepper commercial with yeah. by the sailor man yeah and how old were you uh, 30 when you did that 40 13 14 something 13 like or 14 okay and uh you also have one of the coolest backgrounds in terms of mixing academics with professional uh application and business with theater credentials because yeah. you do have a professional theater background you do have uh, a master's in, in, organizational, in organizational psychology and you've been working in the field with companies for 20 plus years now that's right so it's a pretty rare background for someone who specializes in theater improv and uh communication skills yeah it it was much rarer when I started. More and more people are mashing up theater and advanced degrees and other things. And some universities are even starting applied theater programs. Oh, it must kill you a little bit inside. I, I I sometimes I feel like I'm an old black musician sitting in the, some cafe watching Elvis become rich and famous. I don't know. Oh, no <laughs> twisting, no shouting. <laughs> not allowed so all right but we wanted to talk about storytelling and yeah. and uh i should ask you uh to define your terms you should uh so uh, you, this is not the first time you've asked me that no to define no. my terms i do ask you quite often in fact my yeah. very first presentation at a conference was at nasaga the north american simulation and gaming association i think in 1999 which is where we met. So, yeah. and uh, maybe it was a little bit later than that. But someone else was already a colleague of mine was always already presenting on applied improvisation. So I decided I had this brilliant idea, which is that storytelling would be a useful communication and training and learning tool. And so I did a session on story, and it was all going fine till about forty-five minutes in when this guy from the back of the room, who'd come in late, by the way, and missed my- Very day. late, very late. <laughs> Raised his hand and said, can you define what you mean by story? And I didn't really have a good answer. So I just opened it up to the group and did my facilitation shtick. And we came up with some things. But I've realized over the year, Matt, that when you did that, uh, you were asking a really profound question that still gets debated all the time. And I'm still a little bit on the fringe of in the field, which is, um, with your help, I've come to define story as meaning 
and really three levels of story beyond just anecdote. So what people often think about when they talk about storytelling is that the little examples or self-contained anecdotes. In addition to that, we think about uh, ex exploring and using storytelling as a narrative structure for a whole design or lesson or message that you're giving. So story is fractal in that way. And then also we talk about ambient narratives, which are sort of the stories that we're swimming in all the time that we make up in our heads, that we sort of, the myths, true or not, that we believe that are that are sort of um, the headwinds and tailwinds that might interact with any anecdote or message in a moment. And I wanna get into each of those different categories that you just shared. But there is some academic pedigree behind your notion that story is meaning. There's psychologist Jerome Bruner, uh, who talks, well, talked, he's he's dead, right? I don't know, actually. I don't I think, know. I'm pretty sure he's dead. So I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, some one of you look it up. I'm going to start a rumor. I'm looking at <laughs> but, Yeah. Yeah, it'll be one of those party games to see, you know, who's alive, who's dead. But also there's in critical theory, some of the, the French uh, postmodernists like Georges Jeannette, and then there's Mika Ball, who wrote the book in the 1980s, uh, Narratology, um, that they talk quite a bit about narrative structures as a way of formulating understanding and meaning in one's, one's own sense of things. And so there's, there's quite a bit that you've taken from critical theory, cultural studies, psychology, sociology, to, to formulate your thoughts on this and apply it. Yes. Uh, and, and it feels very important to us. I think the conversations around story, although story is a much more popular tool like applied improv than it was when I sort of bumbled into the field, um, it can still uh, get reduced to this just like, how do you share a personal example? Or what are the four stories that every leader should tell? Uh, as opposed to really recognizing that story is something that our brains are doing all the time, that it is the act of making meaning and it's how we make sense of the world. And so when we can do that consciously and deliberately, instead of just habitually or unconsciously, then we have a much better chance of uh, aligning or articulating what we're intending to communicate with the people that we're trying to communicate to and also understand other people and ourselves. Right. right. Now, my father, who's probably our only listener of this show, <laughs> uh, can't see that Clark on the video is making a funny face. So, so Clark, what, what are you thinking here? Or what? Didn't you like from what either of us? I, it's, it's not that I didn't like it triggered a thought. And um, so because in the cognitive psychology I know, which didn't include a lot of Bruner, by the way, um, there was this sort of revolution in thinking that had Rummelhart thinking about schemas and Minsky thinking about frames as ways to represent sort of uh, semantic knowledge. And then Shank took a similar twist, but he talked about scripts for episodic events. Mm. And so I was thinking of that earlier while you were talking, and then you mentioned that our brains continually making uh, stories about the world. 
And there's the predictive coding models that say we're continue our brains are continually making models of the world. Yes. And it got me wondering about the relationship between models and stories. Mm. Um, models are causal predictive uh, explanations of how the world works. And they tend to be decorative in that sense that, you know, uh, knowledge about the world is. And yet, well, I'm, even while I'm talking with you right now, I'm thinking about how they, in a sense, tell stories about how the world works. So I'm, it, you've just prompted a line of thinking, and I wonder if there's any uh, thoughts you have on the relationship between mental models and stories in this instance, and how we use them to explain the world in both sort of didactic and experiential ways. Yeah. So, so let me start by saying I don't really know what I'm talking about, right? So you're 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 talking about you know sort of deep research, and in some ways I'm making this up. There's a story that I'm making up, but what what you make me think about is that mental models, in some ways, we are are what we call ambient narratives. They're a subset of the kinds of stories we tell. When you say they're predictive. Um, stories, projecting stories about the future or interpretations are is one type of story. We also have all sorts of stories that we tell about the past, how we make sense of our lives. I was just listening to um, a presentation on story by David Hutchins, who you may all know, he's a big um, trainer and facilitator and thinker and writer in the field. And he said that he prompts folks that he's working with in the moment to say, he said, I'm going to give you a, an assignment. And that is that after this moment, after this meeting, you're going to have to tell the story of now to someone else. So put yourself in the mindset of recognizing that you're going to have to tell the story of now. And what I love about that prompt is it brings consciousness to this activity that I think we're doing all the time, which is making up a story about what's happening. Another way to answer your question, Matt, about how we define story, um, our daughter, Leah Richter, did a whole movie, a whole documentary on this where she investigated that question. And she came up with uh, a very specific definition, which at its heart is change over time. <laughs> That's sort of the first piece of it. So anytime something is true and then you're imagining or making up a connection that this is true because of this or this is true and then because of this, something's gonna change. That's sort of the most fundamental version of story. Right. So I imagine that if you have a mental model that says, oh, when this happens, it causes this. That is, in essence, storytelling. It's one version of storytelling. Well, and we see this in a lot of different domains. Yuval Noah Harari's whole premise of history, of the, the history of humanity, is it's a social construction, right? right? Money is a narrative. Nations are narratives. Corporations yeah. are narratives. How we think about illness for decades pre-Harari uh, is also a construction in some ways, right? Their hysteria, for example, got uh, politicized and, and narrativized throughout. But we also see folks like Lisa Feldman Barrett talking about emotions in a, a, a wholly narrativistic way. 
Yes. Right. right. So, so she'll say, you know, you have some sensations and then you make up a story that that is an emotion, right? right. So like maybe I'm feeling embarrassed, but maybe I'm just hungry because I didn't have enough lunch or maybe I'm in love or it's food poisoning. Right. right? Exactly. Either way. Right? Exactly. I think that's her opening story. Uh, right. Right. So all of these things have a basis in variant domains as we go through it. But now let's look at how you apply this. So as we we work with story, all of these theories and, and applications are, are fine and dandy. But as we look at the work we do, how do we get people to use constructivist approaches, narrative, to better their work, to get better at how they learn, or to get better at the yep. way they engage with other humans? There are many, many ways. The most obvious is how can you become consciously more skilled and adept at communicating to another person your message or intention or meaning? And so that's about teaching people conscious storytelling skills. What's the moral of the story? How do I choose a story? How do I craft the story so that it has a compelling beginning, middle, and end? And because our brains want story and are making making up stories all the time, that kind of communication can be very sticky, right? It, we, it makes sense to us. Um, we remember it. It ha can have images and emotions and the sort of logos, pathos, and ethos of uh, a good Aristotelian argument. And so Part of it is teaching, whether it's a facilitator or leader or participants who are trying to build the influencing skills, just to exercise more consciously their storytelling muscles. Right. And I'll say one more thing about that. You know, the difference often will get pushback from people about like, oh, story is, you know, fluffy or um, I don't want to tell a story here. I just want to give facts. But if we recognize this process of um, constructing narrative is happening all the time in our listeners and in ourselves. And then when we make it deliberate and conscious, we're not really asking, should I be telling a story anymore? We're asking, what story am I telling? Is it the story that I want to be telling? How might I tell it more effectively? It strikes me there's a couple things to where, I mean, storytelling skills can be used for good or evil, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. But it occurs to me that there are some inherent problems with story. For instance, you know, when we think about context, if we tell only see an example that's too limited, we may not recognize its application elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, so we, I think we have to be careful in your part of your skills then is to make sure that if we tell a story, we make sure we don't, you know, it's not prematurely converged on that's the only situation in which this occurs. How do we tell stories that help people abstract and create understandings that go beyond? I was thinking that, you know, mental models are not only predictive, but they're explanatory as well. They tell you why it happened. Right. And so you, you do build narrative around it. In fact, that's why we have examples. They're narratives that show how the model played out. Exactly. Content. exactly. But that's a really important point, Clark. Uh, stories may be commonly agreed upon, but they're rarely, if ever, interpreted in the same ways, right? And one of my favorite activities, Tiagi uh, uh, came up with an activity that he stole from Hemingway, 
the six word story, right? How can you tell a story that conveys deep visceral meaning in six words? And you know, the, the, uh, for, for anyone who's baby unfamiliar shoes. with this, for sale. yeah, for sale, baby shoes, never, used. never worn. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. And it just, it gets you right. But those six words can convey so much meaning that a person who has lost a child will feel and interpret differently than someone who's never seen a child. Right. And so it, it happens. So, so, so too. So, so a couple of things that you all are bringing up. One is one story. It, the story meaning is co-created in a story, right? So there's a story right. you're telling, there's a story you're hearing and knowing that you're going to interpret and make up that story in your head. Uh, my goal as a good storyteller or good, especially in training and learning, right? When we have some other goal um, is to align the story that I'm telling, right. the story you're hearing as explicitly as possible, right? So that's one thing. The second is, one anecdote is never the whole story, right? So there's lots of ways you can build that into training. One is give more than one example, just yourself. Another is, again, to know what is my narrative arc? And then what are the anecdotes that support or prove the different parts of that narrative arc? So here's a story about the origin of this topic. Here's a story about what will happen if you're successful using these skills. Here's a story about pitfalls if you don't use these skills, right? There's lots and lots of, uh, sometimes the image I have in my head is like a Christmas tree is my training story, the narrative arc of the lesson that I'm doing. And then I'm hanging all of these anecdotes on it like ornaments to illuminate and deepen that message. Right. You have the reader. The reader interprets the narrator who's telling the story. The narrator of a, is, of course, interpreting what the narrator experiences. And so you get multiple levels of interpretation that cascade through the right. system of people around you. Right. But then there is also the agreed upon narratives that Harari talks about, like money. And how we all have different experiences of conceptualizing money, the meaning money has in our lives, and so forth, and all the other sociological constructs we have, right? So putting all these things together into different types of learning activities, uh, learning methods, becomes a lot more complex than what many people are applying. Yes. And the, the piece that we haven't explicitly articulated yet, of course, is the, we've talked about storytelling, but there's also story listening or story soliciting, inviting other people's story. And in the field of storytelling, that's becoming a, a much more of a focus, right? Is not, if I'm, mm. if I'm, if I'm a story practitioner, whether it's for creating learning environments or to influence as a leader or create a culture, the soliciting of, the inviting into the space of story is as important as whoever's in charge just telling a story themselves. Because hearing all of those voices and co-creating the larger tapestry of narratives and challenging things that we might be blind to, right? What are the stories we're swimming in like? You're 
you're alluding to something you you stated earlier around co-creation. Can you talk a little bit more about co-creating stories and what you mean by that? Yeah, I think it can happen in a lot of forms. One is just this, in some ways, passive co-creation of knowing that anytime I'm telling a story, which is really anytime I'm communicating, what is being received is as important as what I'm saying. So the connections you're making in your head are as much about the story being existing in the world as the words coming out of my mouth, that the story exists in between us. So that's one way. Another is just there are all sorts of explicit ways that we can co-create stories. For example, one of the ways that we use story a lot with teams is to have them you know, create the story of the future, right? Or they've done a visioning activity. And then we say, how do we create the story of coming from now our current state to that future state, right? What is the inciting incident that's going to change this routine into ultimately resulting in that vision of what we want the routine to be in the future? And we can literally co-create that, right? So, oh, I'll do a sentence of it. You'll do a sentence of it. We'll brainstorm it together. Or we'll paint that picture together. We'll share our experiences. We'll say, I'll, you know, like a little band going on a quest. I'll kill the monsters. I'll grow the food. This is great. Clark, in your book, Make It Meaningful, you talk about storytelling as well. I do, um, because it's emotionally compelling. It's effective, as we've been talking about, in terms of uh, communicating uh, context to help illustrate how a model plays out and importance of, of, as I was suggesting, making sure that we have enough suite of stories that people can abstract the underlying idea. One of the things when you were talking to Kat about uh, the co-creation of stories, my mind was going back to something else. One of the points is, and you, you make me flash back to, to Bartlett's work, where he had uh, Native Americans tell a legend story from their culture. And when, uh, you know, essentially the Western culture heard them, they reliably transformed them into things that were more familiar to them. They were not hearing what was said, they were hearing what they could interpret because the cultural backgrounds were so different. So one of the things I'm interested in is how do we knowledge negotiate a shared understanding from a story? And yes. one of the reasons I like assigning group projects is that that is designed to require them to uh, apply that knowledge to create a result, causes them to negotiate a shared understanding. And essentially, they're co-creating an interpretation of a story, but it's not generative, in, as in the case you were talking about, Kat. It's rather more reflective, I guess, of how do, what did we hear, as opposed to what story can we create? Yeah. And um, I, I think, you know, I, I love this conversation because it strikes me Matt, you were talking about a bunch of different factors and people involved in story. There are people I know nothing about, and yet I'm bringing in, you know, Bartlett and Shank and stuff, and I'm not sure that that's shared. Yeah. And it's there's just so much that to unpack here. Well, that's the thing. Storytelling goes across so many multidisciplines that I think it's it's hard for us to be conscious of all of it. So you have you have people who are coming out of theater, for example. And they're unaware, uh, sadly, about some of the cultural 
studies or the psychology work or whatever. And the psychologists may be unaware of what's being done in theater and or in literature. And there are so many aspects that when you call it all out or put it all together, you end up with a, a fairly robust narrative, a fairly robust story about storytelling. It enables us to go really meta, right? But um, yeah. uh, so... Kat, uh, there's uh, one of the things, though, we've been pretty hyper theoretical in the conversation. Uh, we've right. But you use a lot of tools <laughs> and you've created a lot of tools. One of them uh, I, that that I've uh, adopted and so is Tiagi and uh, comes from a dear friend of yours, Ken Adams, the story spine. Yes. So can you just uh, share what the story spine is and or a different tool if you prefer that you've created or used but these sure. tools enable you to make things practical and uh, put things into application that take into consideration a lot of the stuff we've talked about theoretically sure um, there are three that I will do very quickly one is the story spine and I won't go through the whole thing here people can find it anywhere it's sort of the story tool made good maybe i'll go through it here uh, but yes it was created by an improviser and playwright named ken adams to teach school children i just learned from him how to tell stories but also he was working with improvisers helping them create full-length plays collaboratively it was picked up by pixar it was taught to pixar by some improvisers and then became known some in some circles as the pixar story spine um but the, the idea is that it's a mental model for storytelling. And, and what Ken was trying to do was not be uh, proscriptive, but descriptive about what is the core of a good, well-made story? What, do our, what does our brain want to have in storytelling form? So once upon, every, once upon a time every day is the platform of the story or the routine, but one day is the catalyst or what breaks the routine, sometimes called the inciting incident. Then there's consequences because of that, because of that, because of that. Uh, these labels, by the way, are mine, not his. Until finally is the climax. So there's a question posed by the story or attention. The climax is what resolves ultimately that and leads to a new routine ever since then. If you want to add a moral, you can. So that's the story spine. It's wonderful for helping to help uh, construct in your own head is my story complete? Does it make sense? Have I skipped anything? Is there too much? The other here, So here are two other tools. If that's too much, if that feels too heavy for scaffolding, I learned from Michaela Bly, a simple activity which is great for um, generating story ideas, which is simple, simply X was true, now Y is true. And then you go like Y, then you can come up with a what happened to make that shift. And that's all you need to have a story, right? So I used to believe that uh, I could talk about story without defining my terms. Then Matt Richter sat in on one of my sessions and now I believe that defining story is really important when you teach it, right? Um, so that's another tool. And then the third one is a tool called Color Advance, which just distinguishes the sort of advancing what comes next aspect of story from color, which is the descriptive elements. 
and I could spend a long time talking about that. I won't color it too much. But the idea is that the emotive qualities that you're talking about, the explanative qualities, the how do I align better with my audience, given where they're coming from? What do I have to make deeper? Where do I have to like go, okay, that's too much. Those are good muscles to be able to distinguish and exercise. Wonderful. Thank you, Kat. And Kat, where can people find you? At Coppet.com, K-O-P-P-E-T-T.com. T is in Tom. T is in Tom. P is in Peter, but not in that order. (laughs) Right. We'll put that in the show notes as well. So the concept here is that we each share something that was really cool that happened in L&D since the previous episode and something that really disturbed us immensely. And uh, and, uh, we we go through the round robin. So why don't I kick it off since neither of you have actually experienced this before. And I'll start with the worst. The worst was uh, that uh, a friend of ours who is in an education school uh, at a graduate level was uh, finding it quite amusing that the professor uh, made uh, multiple intelligence uh, one of the founding constructs that they have to uh, work on and study because learning styles and the notion that people have different intelligence, different intelligences is utterly uh, important and significant. And the assignment was to create an infographic uh, to this effect. Uh, so people would n- understand the model. And uh, that I found really disturbing coming out of school, a school of education. Uh, and then the best, the best thing that uh, was also from a university, a different university, uh, as we are exploring different programs for my wife's master's program that she's looking into. The uh, woman who was presenting an overview of the program was highlighting that how important it was for people to learn principles, rules, facts, information then find a way to put that all together as a way of applying it through skill building to get feedback on how they apply it, fix anything wrong, and get more feedback. So feedback loops, practice and feedback loops. And then to make sure that what they're learning is validated. And it was just the most basic description of how people learn and should be taught that I heard and it was elegantly explained as the premise for their instruction throughout the master's program so that I wanted to highlight and uh, it was wonderful to hear I think I should say the name of the school that one you should okay that one Northeastern University oh yeah yeah but not the school of education so I cannot say their school of education is any good but this was in their public health group so wow. kudos to them. So, all That's right, our, uh, Elizabeth 
uh, Feldman Barrett is Northeastern University. Yes, that's right. That's right. Oh, yeah, I need to connect that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that program went right up to the top uh, on the uh, list. So. so I will uh, go next. Um, and because I've never done this before, I'm picking anything as far back as I care to go. And one of the really cool things I've seen is this app that exists on iPads and iPhones for teaching uh, CPR, and it's called Lifesaver. And it does a couple things that are extraordinarily well done. Um, one is it does it uses branching video scenarios that are really compelling. So you go in, you're walking along um, in the subway after you've watched a sporting event or something, and somebody next to you suddenly collapses. And you zoom in and the person turns to you, go, can you help? And because you've been in this, presumably you've had some training that this goes along with, but even without it, it does well and it asks you to do things. But just the quality of the video, it's very simple, very direct, very good storytelling. Um, and then the second thing is it uses the actual device in a really interesting way. Eventually you, you check and you do this various um, important triage practices, but eventually it comes to offering CPR. And then you pump the iPad at the rate you're supposed to pump their heart. And it checks, it says you're going too fast or you're going too slow. And it teaches you the motor memory to learn that. And I just think that's a very, very powerful, uh, immersive learning experience. Granted, it's doing something, you know, sort of motor skill, but it was just exemplary to me and and how it applied the principles of learning science and made it very viscerally. Is it just me? Uh, I'm worried about the iPad breaking. You're not shaking it really hard because you'd crush somebody's <laughs> sternum, right? <laughs> so, um, and then the, the thing that I has been bugging me and continues to bug me, I just, I don't know if these people are believing it or they're just so venal they will do it, but continuing to flog stuff that's just wrong, whether it's MBTI or DISC or um, other uh, practices and things, learning styles, millennials, you know, generations. I, you know, is it naive marketing people just going with whatever is new? Is it people who are cynically just will ride any coattail to make a buck? Or is it people who really think this is important? And we know it's probably some mix of all of them. But it just drives me nuts to continue to see people essentially um, purveying snake oil well, uh, I, and in our industry and getting away with it. That's my... I'll, I'll talk about two things in my experience that are experiential or structural. One is that when the lockdown happened, everyone needed to shift to virtual live online programming. And so many of the things that we thought we could only do in person, we discovered how to do in a virtual live setting. And so one of the best things that I've seen are the ways that our work has been able to be scaled and people who didn't have access before have been able to have access that all of these uh, interpersonal, human-centered skills that 
nobody ever thought you could do in this kind of setting have been deeply effective and um, and therefore accessible to all sorts of people to whom they weren't accessible. So that's one of the best things that I've seen that we're not spending huge amounts of money uh, or limiting access or wasting time or hurting the planet with air travel or condensing learning into one day or two days of in-person because that's when we have people in a room and it becomes much more of an event than a process. The worst thing is an outgrowth of that, which is of course, as soon as it can become efficient or um, available, my experience is people wanna reduce it. So now where we used to do two days of learning on a topic, people say, can you do it in 90 minutes? Or people just don't have the attention span for that. And that's just another story they're making up that people don't have the attention span online, I think, if you're doing it right. But that is the biggest struggle that I feel like we find in learning, which is just make it less, make it less, make it shorter, make it shorter, assuming that you're going to get the same bang for your buck and you're not. So two sides I, of the same coin. I absolutely so want to resonate. You know, one of the other things we see is, you know, now that we found it, we can work independently. Companies are trying to retract that back because they they feel like they're losing control and it's that command and control thing. But I think you're you know, absolutely right. There is a continual pressure to shrink learning down. I think it started with uh, 911 when uh, we suddenly nobody wanted to travel. So they said, oh, well, we'll put take our training and put it online. And then they said, oh, well, that's so easy. We've got tools to make it easy. Let's, you know, it shouldn't take more than two weeks to take a bunch of PowerPoints and PDFs, put it up online, add a quiz, and you're done. And I see the pressure. And it's exactly in contrary to what we know from learning science that says, no, you have to space it out. It has to take longer to get to practice to an appropriate level. And so not only is it we're fighting just to keep it. They're fighting to make it shorter, whereas really what we should be fighting is to make it longer. And Will, why don't you tell us your best and worst? You've already heard from me and Clark and Kat. So there's two general things that have been happening that are good. And uh, one is we are doing much more, more and more people are you know, realizing that the learning sciences have something to offer. And more and more people are using those. More and more people are being skeptical of myths and misconceptions and mistakes. Um, and uh, that's that's all good. We're doing better evaluations. We're beginning thinking about evaluation better. We're not there yet. Um, but if I had one big thing that happened in, in improvement in the last three years is that COVID made us realize that online learning can be powerful. And that we were sort of forced into it um, but uh, most of us now believe, hey, uh, we're pioneering in this, we're still figuring it out, but it can be an effective thing. So um, the worst, oh man, I guess I, I'm going with the, I'm going with generative AI and the dangers thereof. Not that I don't think it can be powerful. And I've talked with people that I respect in our field that are using it and are using it uh, successfully. But my big worry is that we're gonna really screw it up in the short term. We're gonna make a lot of mistakes. We're gonna make a lot of investment in that, um, that maybe we should sit back and wait, let other people make mistakes going forward. So I guess that's my biggest fear. 
it is a big opportunity, but it's also my biggest fear. So thank you, Will. And thank you, Kat. Thank you, Clark. And uh, I hope you've all enjoyed our first or our 30-something episode of the LDA podcast. Tune in next month. Uh, actually, tune in in two weeks for Marcus Bernhardt's premiere uh, episode on AI and uh, the finer points and concerns of AI. In fact, his first episode, he'll talk about the hallucinations that are innate within AI. And uh, in one month, we'll be back. Clark and I will be back. And we're going to debate slash discuss slash argue the merits of fun. Uh, we will also talk about informal and formal learning. And we will then be joined by Nigel Payne uh, to talk about organizational learning and some of the inherent challenges uh, organizations are facing thinking about learning as just transactional events versus putting in processes across the organization to support growth, iteration, and failure. So that'll be our next episode with Nigel. Uh, anyway, thank you all, and uh, we will see you soon. Mm -hmm.